the ability to rejoice in the face of adversity is the true test of our confidence before God. If the doubts and whys of life overwhelm us when bad things happen, our confidence in God is not well founded. So how do we establish a relationship with God that gives us confidence and enables us to rejoice even in the face of adversity? Well, surprisingly, religious rites, religious heritage, religious practices, religious works, and religious obedience do not give us the confidence we need. In fact, Paul referred to those who taught such in his day as dogs and evil workers. In Philippians 3, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dog. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There were those in the early church who, while attempting to strengthen the believer's relationship with God, were in fact destroying it. They were known as the Judaizers. They were Jews who had become Christians, but taught that in order for Gentiles to become Christians, they also had to become Jews. They followed Paul wherever he went, and tried to reconvert those he had converted. They said his message of salvation was incomplete. That in order for anyone to be acceptable to God, they had to enter into the covenantal relationship as outlined in the Old Testament. That meant the males would have to be circumcised. And all would have to obey the law and maintain the Jewish practices and traditions. Now, Paul had warned the Philippians about them before, and he said it was no trouble for him to do so again. They were a real threat because they were undermining the confidence and the resulting joy that Christians should experience in a relationship with God. Paul felt very strongly about this. The the intensity of his feeling about the Judaizers is evident in his triple beware. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. That's actually the word he used there. Whether they knew it or not, the Judaizers were like a pack of wild dogs wreaking havoc. Wherever they went, thinking themselves to be doing good, they were actually doing evil. They were undermining the gospel. The circumcision they were advocating did nothing more than mutilate 
In order for the circumcision to mean anything, even in the Old Testament period, it had to include the circumcision of the heart. According to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that's what God was really after. And the believers in Philippi had already circumcised their hearts. They had allowed Christ to cut away the hardness of their heart and and allowed Him to give them a new spirit. A spirit in which they worshipped God and, and gloried in their relationship with Him. They'd also learned to put no confidence in the flesh. And they had learned that from Paul. You know, if there's anyone who should have been able to base his confidence before God on the flesh, it was Paul. But what the Judaizers were teaching, Paul had discarded. He had long ago discovered that to place confidence before God in anything we can do in the flesh is to have misplaced confidence. So he reminds them once again of what he had and what he had gladly given up to gain the confidence that could not be shaken. He continues in verses 4 through 7. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In his own life. Paul had discovered that religious rites, religious heritage, religious practices, religious works, and religious obedience were all of the flesh and could offer no confidence before God, especially when adversity hit. Let's look at them briefly. This morning, and make sure that we have not misplaced our confidence. Paul had been circumcised on the eighth day as prescribed in the Old Testament. Circumcision was the mark that distinguished Jew from Gentile. It was a sacred rite that sealed the covenant between God and man. But a man's circumcision was only a rite. A symbol that was intended to represent a personal commitment to God. The right in itself had no intrinsic spiritual value. Circumcision was not a man's ticket to heaven, even though some thought it was. I'm sure there were Jewish parents who assumed their son's eternal destiny was being sealed by the knife. But it wasn't. Now, it's true. God required it of them. But the right in and of itself was not enough. And to trust in the right was to misplace their confidence. The same is true for us today. The Bible is very clear 
that those who would come to God under the new covenant are to be baptized, are to be immersed in water. It's very important. And no one should say it's not necessary. Scripture commands it. But to trust that your baptism will save you is to misplace your confidence. The rite of baptism in and of itself saves no one. Neither does the Lord's Supper. Partaking at the Lord's table does not guarantee a place at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. Both baptism and communion serve to assure us of our relationship with God, but they don't guarantee it. Neither does our religious heritage. Paul was of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He could trace his religious pedigree. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He even spoke the Hebrew language. No one could question his religious heritage. His heritage, however, meant nothing in the eyes of God if it hadn't resulted in personal faith in Christ. Unlike the family Bible, our standing before God is not inherited. That's not to say our heritage is of no importance. The example and influence of godly parents and grandparents is invaluable, and we should all strive to pass our faith on to our children. But we must never assume that just because we came from a Christian family, that we are a Christian. Confidence that's placed in our religious heritage is misplaced confidence because it's confidence placed in the flesh. And so is confidence placed in religious practices. Paul was a Pharisee. Now, we tend to look down on the Pharisees because Jesus exposed hypocrisy in so many of them. But in many ways, the Pharisees were the best of the Jews. They were the cream of the religious crop. The word Pharisee means separated ones. And there were never more than 6,000 of them at any one time. They took very seriously the practice of their religion. They studied God's Word. They prayed. They tithed of their income. They were very religious. But their religious practices could never give them confidence before God. And neither can ours. If our standing before God depends on the amount of time we spend in prayer and Bible study, or the amount we place in the offering on Sunday, how much is enough? Is 15 minutes a day in prayer enough? Or should it be an hour? Or two? Or three? Is a chapter a day sufficient 
Or should an entire book be read? Is 10% good enough? Or is that just the starting place and God really expects more? If our confidence is based on our religious practice, how much practice does it take to get confident? Always a little bit more. We'll never reach a point where we are religious enough. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't strive to spend more time in prayer and Bible study, or we shouldn't seek to raise our level of giving. Those things should be expressions of our faith and reflections of our desire to deepen our faith. But if we are doing them to find confidence before God, we will never find it. Because they are still practices done in the flesh, as are religious works. Paul had always been a man of action. He wasn't content to just believe. He had to act. When he believed that Jews who had become Christians had abandoned the faith, he didn't just say so. He hunted them down and tried to bring them back into the fold. He became a leading persecutor of the early church, and he did so to please God. He, he was zealous for God. He loved God. He was working for God. Even after his conversion, he continued to work for God with a zeal that has never been equaled. Who in the history of the church has accomplished as much as did the Apostle Paul? I dare say no one. But all of his religious works, he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's not to say they had no value or that they were worthless to God, only that they carried no weight in gaining a standing before God. No one can do enough to merit salvation. No one can offset their sin with good works. Our works will never outweigh the debt we owe. So it's foolish to think our works can ever make us confident before God. And lastly, neither will our religious obedience. As a Jew... Living under the law, Paul had been found blameless. He had broken none of the commandments, at least none that anyone could see. From all appearance, he was perfect, blameless. There were no sins in his life that anyone could point to. He was a righteous man in the eyes of men. But yet he knew God would judge his heart. God would examine his motives. God knew the secret sins of his thought life. He might look good to others, but his righteousness was like filthy rags before God, and he knew it. So his obedience to an external law, a code of behavior, gave him absolutely no 
confidence before God. In fact, nothing that he had once valued as a religious man could give him the confidence he had found in Christ. His standing before God was no longer dependent upon the flesh, upon anything he did. It was totally dependent upon Christ and what he did. And he knew Christ was acceptable to God, as were all those who by faith had become one with Christ. When God looked at Paul, he didn't judge him on the basis of his religious rights, his religious heritage, his religious practices, his religious works, or his religious obedience. He judged him solely on the basis of his relationship with Christ. Paul was trusting Christ to save him and had expressed that trust as God had instructed he was saved. And Paul could rest assured of that fact. Even in the face of adversity, even as a prisoner in Rome, when writing this letter, Paul could rejoice. He was waiting for the verdict from the emperor. But he knew his future was secure. He knew where his life was leading. And nothing, no temporary pain or hardship or disappointment could take away his joy. He wasn't about to allow any well-meaning religious zealots to shake his confidence by insisting that he attempt to attain that which is unattainable. Confidence in the flesh, in what we do, in how religious we have become. It won't work. It never has. Paul would not trust in himself. He would only trust in Christ, and Christ alone would save him. We would be incredibly foolish to do otherwise. Let's stand.